think we get it going tonight, Dad? We better. Jesus, will you come by here? Oh, Jesus, will you come by here? Jesus, will you come by here? Well, that was the opening music to Sounder, released in the fall of 1972, and it stars Cicely Tyson and Paul Winfield. It's got a great supporting cast, especially the kids and some of the, their friends. Um, Taj Mahal was in it. I know. He was playing Ike. Yeah, he was awesome because he just, whenever he was on the screen, he was he was either playing his guitar or singing or something. <laughs> he, he's had a fantastic career. He got one already. Come on, boy. Let's go. Yeah, well, we can talk about some of that for sure. Yeah. But uh, something I learned right at the beginning of this movie is that it's co-produced by Mattel. And I was I know. like, what the heck? I never knew that Mattel was into movie productions at, at all. I had no idea. I think they were trying to get into media and entertainment because they had the Mattel Atari. Wasn't Atari a Mattel product? Uh, Sears released it for a while. I don't know. Mattel was in, in television. They had the, I think that was in television. Oh, okay. But yeah, they did have a, a gaming console, I think, for a while in, in the late 70s. The very early days of that whole, that whole business. Yeah, and they, they did a great job. You're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. I think he's untreated, boy. I think he's all over now, boy, you old coon. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm coming to you from snowy North Bend. We have snow in the forecast for the next week, so we'll see what happens with that. Sweet meat on the table, we hear you, boy. Come on! Uh, You'll have to break out the snow shovel. This is uh, Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, where our weather is kind of typical winter weather here, cool and windy. Welcoming everyone back to Classic Movie Reviews and Sounder, a wonderful film from 1972. It reminded me a little bit of um, where, where the Red Fern Grows. Yes. Yep. The, uh, the story, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole structure of the film, uh, the characters, everything made it really a, a first-class uh, film, which uh, when when it was first being put together by 20th Century Fox and Mattel, there was a lot of skepticism that it could do well in theaters. And uh, to everyone's uh, pleasant surprise, it it was a huge uh, hit. I converted the, uh, the gross from the box office in 1972 to today's current do- dollars, and it's... In today's money, it would have uh, grossed 180 million. Oh wow! So yeah, and a... and the budget was like in today's dollars, probably about 10, 10, 11 million. It's very realistic in terms of where they lo- they they filmed it entirely on lo- a location in Louisiana. 
Oh, the cinematography is so beautiful. Yeah, the location shooting is great. Or Louisiana, I should say. I guess I got that wrong. But, you know, when I was watching that, it it seemed so hot. It was always (laughs) hot. Yeah. Everywhere you looked, everybody was just hot. Sweating. Had the fans on. And their cabin, their their cabin or their shack was just kind of open to the air, you know, like uh, yeah. it wasn't really weatherproof, I would say. But I don't even know if it really needed to be in that kind of climate. Except for the rainy season. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Boy. Well, a little bit about the background. <clears throat> we mentioned uh, 20th Century Fox was the distributor and uh, it was a co-production. Uh, and Mattel was involved in that. And the director, Martin Ritt, had a very long and successful career. Just a few of the films that uh, he was involved in. HUD from 1973 with uh, Patricia Neal and Paul Newman. Ombre from 1967 with Paul Newman. And my my mother's, one of my mother's favorite movies that I took her to uh, in Billings, Murphy's Romance with uh, James Garner and Sally Field. She loved that so much, she wanted to go see it again. Oh, And that nice. was in 1985, just a wonderful film. But he, he uh, I didn't uh, check out how many films he did, but they were, mostly they were uh, of a socially conscious kind of uh, nature. Certainly that was true with Ombre and uh, Paris Blue and Edge of the City and others. And again, he was one of these people that was blacklisted in 1952 for uh, five years. He really had to scramble around to make a living. Did a great job on this film, though, I think. Oh, yeah. The best part of the movie for me was the relationship of the family. Yes, yes. And in particular, I mean, the father-son relationship was great. And and the relationship of the, the husband and wife, yeah. Well, Cicely Tyson, as as the uh, as the mother of the uh, family, I think her name was Rebecca, is the epitome of a strong-willed, driven woman. She was going to make that farm succeed in the face of all this adversity. And when they were they were making the sugar cane, like doing sugar cane into uh, the sugar, uh-huh. th- those scenes where they were using that mule to grind up the cane and all just I have to I'd have to go by my reading and and what I've learned but it seems like that was very real in in the way it was presented and boy she was not going to fail well then there were some scenes of them working in the field and like planting the seeds and then tilling the crops and and just how backbreaking that work is and they didn't have any gloves or anything so um yeah I, I think they were definitely gonna make that crop succeed because they had no choice and there was even a a really great speech by the older son um who is played by kevin hooks Kev, kevin hooks plays david lee when he talks about when he's on that kind of journey to try to find his dad and then he he finds that schoolhouse that's full of uh, black children and, and the teacher is black. And he's, he just can't believe what he's seeing. His, he, the teacher asks him, well, haven't you ever been to school? And he says, well, yes, but not like this. 
And then they, they have this exercise where they tell us, they're telling a story and all the classmates kind of challenge the story to, you know, is it true? And, you know, what happened and give us details. And he stands up and says, well, I believe the story that he's telling because that's what, that's what happened to us. We had to make this work with the, the crop because we didn't have any choice. I believe Clarence's story. Do you want to stand up and tell us why, David? Well, some people came and took my father away. And other people said we couldn't work the farm. But we had to, else we would have lost the farm. So we planted the crops and they grew. I believe Clarence's story because of what he did. He couldn't swim, but he had to, else his sister would have drowned. And that's how he did it. Such a powerful scene that in that journey, just to, he, I, I figured, I deduced that he was probably about fourteen in the film. I or read that he was ma- eleven, but yeah, 11? somewhere in okay. early early teens, maybe or late, just before preteens, maybe. I, I can't imagine what the, what that would be like to uh, have your oldest child with some food, take off on a journey with very little knowledge of where to go, in search of his father who had been arrested and sentenced to one year in jail because he stole some food for his family. Yeah, not just one year in jail, one year of hard labor. Yeah, one, yeah. And boy, that was the way they were working on that lumber. Yeah, that looks so dangerous. But yeah, he stole some sausages and some meat from a smokehouse, and the punishment for him for that was one year of hard labor. It seems a bit excessive. I was reading uh, some background on the film, and... Uh, I, I'm not. Go- I'm not sure. I'm going to get this all correct, but the uh, the writer of the, uh, the original uh, story, the book Sounder, was was really reluctant to get involved in the film because he was afraid that it would be turned into some kind of a uh, feel good Hollywood type film from the 1970s and 80s. He didn't want it to be that way. He wanted it to, as much as possible, depict what was life really like for this working family in the, in uh, Louisiana trying to make a go of it in 1933 in a segregated uh, area. And, and I think uh, they finally convinced him because the director was Martin Ritt and uh, the people that were producing it were so involved in it that they wanted to make it realistic that he decided to join in on the kind of helping put the screenplay together. I wanted to mention something about uh, Cicely Tyson before I forget. In the movie that we did recently, Odds Against Tomorrow, this is a this is a quiz question. Uh, I had to look for her. She played the bartender in that jazz club. Oh, my gosh, really? <laughs> I, did, I did I not know, know that. that. No, I wouldn't but, have picked but, up on that. She's uh, 95, uh, still doing well. Uh, she did a television movie called The Autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman that's just outstanding. And uh, she's been in some recent... uh, In 2014, she was in the television show How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She had a reoccurring role in that. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for this film. She did not win, but 
Um, she just did an excellent job. What a, what a talent. There's an interview, I'll, I'll post a link to this in the show notes, where she talks about making Sounder and how she originally wasn't going to be selected for this. Sounder obviously was a gift from the gods. They gave me the script and they asked me to read the role of the school teacher, which I did. So they began to talk to each other about giving me the role, and I said, I don't want the role of school teacher. She's not a challenge to me. I want play Rebecca. And so they said to me, you're too young, you're too pretty, you're too sexy, you're too this, you're too that. And I said, but I am an actress. Good morning, Rebecca. I'll come see Nathan. Well, I wish I could, but I can't let you. I don't understand that, Sheriff. Yeah? Ain't no business except Sunday and holidays. No women folk, no time. You mean tell me I can't see my own husband? I just follow orders. And so they didn't give it to me. They went in search of someone else to play Rebecca. I went home and I started to work on the role of Rebecca. I guess about six weeks later, I got a call from my agent saying uh, that I had gotten the role. And so I said, well, when do we start? And he said, aren't you excited? You know, I, I just told you, you have to. I said, no, I always knew it was mine. I was just waiting for them to find out. <laughs> Let's go to work. <laughs> <laughs> she had the same confidence in her real life as she had as Rebecca in the film. <laughs> yeah, and then she describes that scene when uh, Nathan Lee, her husband, comes home and how, I don't know if you read about this, but how it was very uh, intense and she, you know, she was running down that hill and, and then they embraced and, and very emotional, even for the actors and people on set. And after they got done with that, the cinematographer came over to her and said, you know what, I'm, I'm really sorry... I think we're going to have to do that again. And, and she's, Cicely Tyson's like, I don't know if I can do that again. Uh, but why, why do we need to do it again? He says, well, I was tearing up and I, I couldn't see through the lens and I'm not sure that I captured it correctly. Because he was even getting emotional at that scene. But fortunately, it did turn out and they, they could use the first take. So, <laughs> In, in uh, all of the films that I've seen, even now when we're talking about it, it's emotional. And when oh, yeah. he returns, and he's been damaged uh, while, while in this prison term, and they, he said it very eloquently that uh, uh, he was he was practically killed in a dynamite explosion. He couldn't do any more, so he wasn't any use to them, so they let him go early. What's the matter with your leg, Danny? Uh oh, I got it hurt in a dynamite blast. When I wasn't no more used to them, they took some time off my sense and let me come home. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there, huh? Oh, no kidding. And, the, and the only the only reason they had him there was because they needed the somebody to do this hard labor. We needed hard labor, yeah. And and Paul Winfield as as the husband. Remember him in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Oh, he's so good. And he was in Terminator, too. I, I was yes. reading about him. He played one of the yep. police detectives. He uh, 
He died at a fairly early oh, age. Oh, and Alien. He was an alien. He was one of the crew members, one of the mechanics that was always uh, talking oh, trash and giving that's the other right. guy. <laughs> they wanted to, they wanted to redo need, their contract. Yeah, they need a bigger share. You know, <laughs> he's so good. He was so good in this movie. He, they both he, were. He's a little known uh, in today's world, but uh, he had a he had a very successful career. And again, he was nominated for an Academy Award for uh, playing Mr. Lee in this film, and. Uh, he was, he was a tough, tough guy. I mean, he was gonna, he was gonna make his family uh, succeed just as much as she was. I love the opening of the film, where he and, and the older son Kevin Hooks character are chasing that raccoon all over the backwoods. <laughs> yeah, and Sounder was right on the job, and then. Then they almost uh, got it, and then they his almost got gun misfired, and he's like, no, and then they have to chase it again. That was great. What, what makes that so powerful to me is that that was going to be their food. If they had gotten that raccoon, I, I suspect that he would never had to have gone out to try to find some food for his family because that would have furnished it. Exactly. I mean, that one in, instant of the gun misfiring kind of like set off a whole year's worth of really hard times for them and then kevin hooks who plays uh the older son that goes on the journey he's a director he's done a lot of directing remember the wesley snipes movie passenger 57 (laughs) yeah i was just looking at that yeah he directed that he directed that and he directed one with patrick swayze near the end of patrick swayze's life called black dog and he's still he's still uh working he's in his 60s he was on another excellent uh, television show called The White Shadow, which is about a high school basketball program. It was on CBS back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Mm, I don't remember that one. But yeah, excellent. excellent. I, th- I thought that the relationship that Paul Winfield's character and Kevin Hook's character had, uh, Nathan and David, was just so beautiful. And... The only time that he ever got angry at that Nathan ever got angry at David was when David said that he didn't want to go off to school. Yes. But we yeah, come on, Jerry, let's go. We go. To the commissary to get this boy some clothes. In fact, I'm gonna get some for everybody. Nathan, you can't do that. We owe oh, Mr. Perkins too. Don't tell me what we owe old man Perkins. I do know it. Let him worry about the collecting. Come on, David. Come on, didn't you hear me? But, Daddy, you just got home. I want to stay home and be with you. Well, I won't be with you, too, but... Well, this school is something you need. Something that's good for you, like, uh... Like good air to breathe. I want you to have it. And that's where it's gonna be. But, Daddy, who's gonna help you in the field? Your leg is hurt. You can't work like you used to. Who's gonna help you around the house? Let me tell you something. If I had both my legs cut off, I could do more work in that field than you could in a hundred years. I won't go, Daddy. I just won't go. Just a minute. You don't tell me what you ain't going to do. I tell you. And if I say you're going to that school, you're going. Now, come on. I don't want to hear nothing more. David Lee. David Lee, come back here. David. You could just just feel like how desperately he, he wanted his son to go get an education. And get out of there. And he even says, you know, don't get too attached to this place. This is like a dead end. 
Yeah, and then, yeah, the ending of it is really, really emotional also, which I, I won't reveal. But um, a couple of other facts about the film. The, uh, the judge in the film at that time was an actual judge in that area. He was not an actor. Yeah, I saw judge. that the, at the end of the movie they thanked him. William Thomas Bennett and the pastor, Thomas and Philip Phillips. Phillips was a, was an actual uh, pastor in real life, so they used those two people for those roles, and then Taj Mahal. Wow, yeah, there's some great music in this movie, really good music. He, I mean, the uh, the kind of the background music, and then also the music that the characters were were creating. I enjoy his music. It has nothing to do with the fact that he and I are the same age. <laughs> <laughs> He's done thirty albums. Oh, jeez. And then he's done like at least that many, if not more, collaborations with other musicians. And he did a, a, a little bit of acting here and there through his career. He was a funny uh, He was a funny guy. He had some funny lines. Yeah. In some ways, he was the only relief in the film, you know, from yeah. the intensity of it. Well, and well, then and then that that baseball game, that baseball game was great too. That, yeah. that whole scene of them, <laughs> yeah, just kind of just relaxing and hanging out and having fun. You know, that was fun. That was fun to watch. It brought back memories of when I was a little boy. My dad would play baseball and softball, and I'd go to those games in Lewistown, and they were just pickup games with people in their twenties and thirties. And it was like that in terms of, you know, you, had, you were lucky to have a mitt for some people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just reinforced how close they were as a group, as, as a family. And even the smaller children, the two smaller children, I thought did an excellent job. Because uh, the youngest boy was had to be maybe, what, five? Yeah, the kids did a really good job um, with their acting as well. And... It, they really seemed like a family, didn't they? Like, I, I, I really believe that they were a family when I was watching oh, it. totally. And I think that's because of the, the their professionalism and the whole crew, the story, and then Martin Ritt's uh, uh, leadership or direction to the film. Uh, Ritt was such a popular director. He was the favorite of Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. They, they really wanted to do any movie that he was going to be involved in. And and one that we probably should add to our list that we haven't talked about is Paris Blues from 1961 with uh, Sidney Poitier, Diane Carroll, Paul Newman, and I think Joanne Woodward. Now there's a powerful cast. What's it called again? Paris Blues. It takes place in Paris. It's in uh, black and white jazz musicians, love affairs, and that sort of thing. Very good. Well, you sent me a list of th- that was three pages long of movie ideas. So yeah, yeah. not not <laughs> only that, but since then, oh, I, no. <laughs> I, yeah, since then, I've picked out the six or eight that are my favorites. Okay, among well, that's that. good because I was a little overwhelmed. Yes, by... <laughs> Off the recording, I will uh, send you a, a list. One that we have to do is Day of the Jackal, because it's sort of a follow up to. Uh, Battle for Algiers that you've seen. Oh, right. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah. So Cicely Tyson was nominated and Paul Winfield was nominated. And there was one other black actor nominated that year. And I think that was the first time that that had happened. You're right. And I'm looking here to see what helped me out here. 
Um, yeah, I read it and then I forgot who the other person was. Oh, I can't find it either. Shall we take a minute and kind of go through the plot? It's pretty straightforward. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, the Lee family are sharecroppers uh, working the land. Barely subsistence living is probably what best describes it. In a parish in Louisiana, they have a real need for food because they've got a family of four, three children. And uh, Mr. Lee, Paul Winfield's character, resorts to uh, going out and uh, finding food from other places. And uh, as a result of that, he gets arrested. And, you know, I, I wanted to just yell at that sheriff, like, you have to be such a jerk. Well, and he was a jerk throughout the whole movie. He, but He, it's he just, was. It, I mean, he was, I mean, that's... That's he not didn't, surprising. I mean, I no, I don't think isn't. he 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 didn't think he was being a jerk. He he kept saying that these are the rules. These are the rules. I, I can't break these rules. And and I think that's really how he saw it. It's a credit to James Best's uh, uh, skill as an actor to have portrayed that because he was just unrelentingly obnoxious at at best. And they they put. Winfield in handcuffs for stealing I think the food and they're in it and they're in the shack going through the shack there's no there's no procedure for that they don't have a search warrant or anything like that and they take what little food they find that they say oh yeah this is what you stole the ham and some other stuff put him in the car and drive off how are they so sure that that is the ham that was stolen right like like you said there's no there's not other than the fact that they say that, you know, this stuff was stolen and, and they found that in his shack. That's the only evidence. It's very flimsy. Very flimsy. And then to make matters worse, one of the deputies shoots uh, Sounder, the dog, <sighs> and injures him. Seriously, the dog run, uh, runs away. If it, if it hadn't been for um, Nathan kicking the gun, I think they would have killed the dog. Would, yeah, they would have. And the, the dog runs away and just disappears for like, months i know poor thing um so then they through a series of scenes we find that he's coming up for trial and quote uh, unquote trial yeah yeah trial and uh, i almost was thinking after i watched this and then i saw how he was working in the uh, prison this was their recruitment vehicle for bringing people into that sawmill place um, oh, yeah, it was. No, for sure. Like, for sure. Because the, the, he basically says that at the end when he says, well, I got injured and they didn't need me anymore, so they reduced my sentence. Because what use is him to them? He's just going to be taking up food and space. <clears throat> there was one person that, that uh, tried to help um, David Lee, Kevin Hook's character, and that was, I believe, Mrs. Boatwright. Yeah. She tried to do the right thing by finding out what prison they had sent uh, Mr. Lee to because the sheriff would not reveal that. And I'm like, really? You don't even let people know where where uh, they've been sent? I can't do that, Rita. Now, we have a policy here on colored prisoners. And I ain't about to change that, even though we're good friends. Charlie, just because a man and his family are colored. Look, I don't make the rules, Rita. And you're putting yourself out on a limb asking me to do such a thing. And I'll be damned if I'm going to jeopardize my job just because you're in love with a little colored boy. Excuse me. 
Young here. Sheriff Young here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You bet your life, sir. I'll be right over. That was Judge Elliott. When Judge Elliott calls me, I jumped. Goodbye, Rita. But Charlie. No. And oh no. They won't let any of the any of the black people know or no. his family, and and it kind of reveals like the hierarchy of oppression in that society at that time. Because I think that if a white man had gone in there and, and asked that, that they would have given it to him, but because she was a woman and she, I I felt like she was widowed or she was living on her own, that that she wasn't going to be given that information, right? And then she tries to take it herself by rifling through the file and gets caught. And then he threatens her with like, basically like social death. Yeah. yeah. He was going to tell everybody what she'd done and why she'd done it and who she'd done it for. And she says, you really would do that, wouldn't you? And he says, yep. Because that's the rules. Because that's the rules. But she does show up, and, and that scene when she, she, she's tried and failed the, the, between her and Kevin Hooks is very, very well done. Also, well, I think she did. I think she did see where he was at that point. But she was. Oh, you so, did. Okay. Well, because she says that she didn't write afterwards, and 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 um, David is is pushing her, saying, "Well, I know that you saw it. Why don't you just tell me?" And she's saying, "Well, I can't. I I didn't see it. I I, I you know I didn't see it." But then, like a couple scenes later, she shows up at their house and says, "I I know where he is." And I feel like she had a like a heart to heart talk with herself, saying, "I the, the right thing to do here is to tell them, even if it means yeah. that that I'm gonna suffer as a result." Like I think she convinced herself that it was the right thing to do. And then she had a, a kind of a very very. Uh... A preliminary map or or draft of a map, and she sat with the family and sort of described where she thought Mr. Lee was located. Well, that really, really stuck with me. I, I kept thinking about that after the movie, that scene when they're looking at the map, and I and I realized in a real visceral way when when I was watching that just how isolated they were. And the I fact know, that yeah. not not only was it a really long walk to town, but they didn't really know how to get anywhere outside of kind of their walkable area. And when they were doing that map, it was, it was a real struggle to try to figure out how to get from where they were to where they needed to go and to try to, and then when David walks off he's got that map with him. Yes. But I, I don't know how much, I mean, he does, he does end up finding the camp, which is so the, so it must've helped and, and worked, but then he gets lost on the way back. He gets lost on the way back and, the scene where he's trying to find the prison camp uh, in the beginning, when he goes by that big mansion that's uh, uh, just separated feel by the, the fence. Fear in his heart? I, I just oh. felt like he was like terrified. Terrified and also uh, overwhelmingly stunned yeah. that anything like that existed. He'd never that was never in his frame of reference in his whole life. So he he gets to the and then that that prison guard to keep him away, uh, injures him, hits him with a chain or a club or something. and Poor guy, he's just trying to find his dad, and, yeah. and the guards are so awful. 
they're not help they're not helping him at all i mean it's just it's just kind of heart-wrenching and and then i was i was thinking that he was going to get really sick from that like get sepsis or something um, yes he's fortunately doesn't doesn't get infected and and is helped by a school teacher who is played by was that Yvonne Gerald? Camille is her name. Janet McLaughlin. And she she oh, was in okay. she was in yeah. movies and television for a while as well. She was she That's was in funny. quite a few she is. quite a few T V shows and, and movies. I've got a uh, another name here, Meryl Sharkey as the teacher. That was the that was the white teacher. Oh, because remember okay. he went to okay. the school that was mostly That's white right. kids, and then she then she had the classroom that was all black kids. That's right. Okay. Uh, and and she inter- she she helps him out and and keeps he keeps him safe and he stays at her house for a bit, and he, she introduces him to a a few black writers and and introduces him to the fact that you know there's a rich history of black literature and and black. A culture that he had never really been exposed to. Here, let me tell you something about the books on these shelves. This book is about a woman who helped to free slaves. Her name was Harriet Tubman. She died in 1913. Thanks, Miss Jansen. And this one is about a man called Crispus Attucks. He was the first black man to die in the American Revolution, the war that was fought to help this country become the United States. Miss Shelton, don't you teach in your school about folk who ain't dead? Sure. Here's one about a man who's very much alive. Dr. William E. B. Du Bois. What'd he talk about? Here, I'll read something he said. The longing of black men must have respect, which means that a man and a woman are human and must be treated that way. The rich and bitter depth of their experience, the unknown treasures of their inner life, the strange rendings of nature they have seen may give the world new points of view and make their loving, living, and doing precious to all human hearts. And to themselves, in these days that try their souls, the chance to soar in the dim blue air above smoke is to their finer spirits boon and guerdon for what they lose on earth by being black. You're a nice lady, Miss Johnson. When he gets a book from Mrs. Boatwright, it's it's the Three Musketeers, right? So it's it's yes, it's a it's a European story about you know white people and and he's he's reading it and he he desperately wants to learn to read and to be educated, but then he gets these books from Camille, uh, John Miss Johnson that kind of opened up his eyes to a whole nother uh, set of information that he'd never had access to. That was like his journey to manhood, that search for his father. It really was. It was It was kind of like that hero's journey almost, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he, he finds his way back home. He doesn't find his father, unfortunately, which no. is sad. But he does. he does find his way back home eventually. And now he's 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 really conflicted because he needs to help on the farm, but he wants to go away because 
Camille has offered him the chance to go to school there. He could live with her in a room that she had and further his education. And he's just, he's really torn. And then his father comes back, an injured man, and gets injured further when he gets knocked over by the uh, sugarcane press. So now he's he's convinced he's going to stay and, and help his dad and mom succeed yeah. in their keeping their place. And that's when Paul Winfield has that powerful scene. That's the strongest he is in that movie. He really comes across well. Yeah, well, it's... You can just you can it's the passion of him wanting to have a better life for his kids I think that's coming out there and but he's but then he quickly he quickly gets a hold of himself because Rebecca is kind of like saying hey what you know calm down yeah. what are you doing <laughs> yes and David runs off down to the river and is sitting by the river and and Nathan comes up and says hey do you mind if can we talk for a minute and then he kind of get becomes really vulnerable and, and talks to him about what happened to him at the camp and explains to him why it's important for him to go get an education basically and that they'll come and visit him and they'll they'll be excited for him and you know they want him to do this and then he just it's just it's god it makes me tear up just thinking about it but he he just scoots over on the log and gives his dad a big hug you know it's just so sweet and tender when he does finally get ready to go off to uh, to school, which I, I don't know whether that was five miles away, fifty miles away, there's no way I didn't, I couldn't tell that at all. It was in a different parish. That's all I know. It might be like going from North Bend to uh, to Fall City or something, or it might be even further. But he's he's dressed and and ready to go, and and then his brother and sister don't want him to leave and they don't want to help. I don't want to carry the bag. And then the sister does. And then the little kid, the, the, the little boy says, no, I'll take it. And the, the bag was bigger than he was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's such a simple scene, but it showed how much they cared for each other. And he's got a great line at the end that gives you, it gives you a feeling of, of like hope. It's, it's a very hopeful ending. I think, um, I, um, I think about that sometimes, like uh, the distance between North Bend and Seattle is about 30 miles. And, and you know, you can get in the car, the freeways right there. I could be in downtown Seattle in, in a half an hour. But in 1933, that could have taken all day because there was no good road and you would have had to gone by most likely a horse-drawn carriage. So the distances at that time were had a lot different meaning than they do today. Folks. No, totally, totally. Um, yeah, I was just looking at some critical uh, reviews, the, the responses. Not critical, I mean, very positive responses. And the one that came comes to mind is, Sounder received warm reviews and was praised as a welcome change from the wave of black uh, films that were mostly considered low quality, low budget, and exploitative. Like there were the you know the the uh, what do they call them? Black explo uh, exploiting uh, films. I forget the word for that, but black black exploitation or something. Yeah, something, and this was such a change from that. And you know this, I don't think we could have picked a better film that exists from that time frame. 
as a as a sort of a centerpiece for looking at uh, black film prior to the, to the day. So it, it's it's uh, two thumbs up in my view. I give it a ten. Yeah, I really do. Oh, for sure, for sure, definitely a ten. We've had some really excellent movies lately, really excellent movies. And um, again, this one is available to watch for free on YouTube, and so I, the quality is is pretty good. I even watched it on my big screen TV, and it it looked like you know it was fine. It wasn't like Blu-ray quality or anything like that. I really really appreciated the way the family was portrayed and how loving they were and how they weren't stereotyped at all it was just like this was a portrait of their life and it was very almost matter of fact in a way and it very clearly showed without kind of hitting you over the head too much what life would have been like in 1933 in a segregated society there was there was at least two times where uh rebecca was being berated by a white man and she just had to bite her tongue you know, she could not say anything. She could not give him a look. And and that was true because he would have had, he would have just, he, she could have gone to jail for saying something or giving him a look or talking back to him, you know? It was, it was so powerful. Those scenes were very telling. That was the, I, I think, I think he might have been the owner of the property that they were working as sharecroppers. And also owned the store where she had to buy, she had to buy food. And then also the sheriff. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a it's an outstanding movie, and um, they did a great uh, job when it was when it was being released. The uh, producer, I read here that the producer personally visited thirty five cities and held over five hundred screenings with sixty simultaneous sneak reviews previews in New York City in wow. order to build in order to build word of mouth. Uh, interest in the film because they, they they really got after it knowing that it was it was going to be one that could possibly not do well in the theaters and it was a huge hit yeah it went on to be uh, nominated for academy awards yeah i think it was nominated for uh, several academy awards so anyway yeah it's it's outstanding i think that's the uh, fourth in our uh, series of black films yeah, that kind of closes out that that run of films, and wow, what a great series! And I can't wait to come back in four more movies and talk about some other uh, films. But these are going to be more um, people of color, so uh, not just uh, focusing on black actors, but other people of color. And in between that, we've got some musicals coming up, and the first one is Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Dandy from 1942, a really, really well done film. And uh, James Cagney is outstanding and it resurrected his career. So that'll be fun. And it's uh, Nancy's favorite film. Oh, so are you go- is she going to be joining us on the podcast for that one? I hope so. I hope so. I'm yeah. going to try to get the uh, family to watch that with me. I think that would be fun to watch together. Have, have uh, Haley and Noah watch Sounder? No, but I, I'm going to tr- see if we want to watch it maybe this weekend. I think they would love it, too. Yeah. I think they'd find it to be really enlightening. And in our parallel universe with Turner Classic Movies, Sounder was showing this week. Oh, my TCM. God. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh, weird. Weird. <laughs> 
I don't remember what day it was. It may have even, even been the end of last week, but it, it 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 there it was. So who knows? Maybe they'll do Yankee Doodle Dandy. So I figured out who the third black <clears throat> actor was that was nominated that year. It was Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Oh, you're right. Yes. Okay. So it was Cicely Tyson and Paul Winfield and Diana Ross. Yeah. Was it... Uh, uh... Let's see, one of the people that we've seen in a film, and I just can't remember his name, Harry Belafonte said that this was a period in time in the 60s and 70s where small uh, trees were being planted that would uh, hopefully grow into a, a really more open approach toward filmmaking. And so that's an example there of another one. Yeah, I think it's important to... I was thinking about this, and maybe this will be my closing statement on this whole series of movies. Um, if you go back to look at Harlem Rides the Range and what it took to put that movie together and what resources were available to them to do that, and then you jump ahead to this movie, and then you jump even further ahead to a movie like Black Panther, uh, it's... It, I think you could definitely say that the, there's been strides made in having more inclusion and more representation. And that's not to say that we're there by any means. There's still tons of work to do. But it is it is encouraging kind of going back and looking at the history a bit to see progress being made. Totally, totally agree. We're, we're on to four sort of completely different films as a, change, as a switch up, as they say. And one of them is going to be in the theater, and um, I think it is... Oh, an, Ameri an American in Paris? Yeah, no. an American yeah. in Paris, I think. I think. Well, it, I have my list right here. Yes, an American in Paris is in theaters uh, January 19th and January 22nd. So I'm going to try to go see it in um, on the 22nd. And, Excellent. And uh, report back from the theater on that one because i think that's the one that that's one of the ones that we're going to do it is it's the third in our series of four or the four i should i could name them real quickly if i was here here we go yankee doodle dandy followed by in the good old summertime with van johnson and judy garland then an american in paris and then cover girl with rita hayworth right yeah that's it awesome so and then we're back to uh a different approach with uh, people of color films. All right. Well, there you go. There's the next eight episodes laid out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, thanks everybody for listening. And, and uh, that was our review of Sounder and coming to you from snowy North Bend. It's Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching.
All right, I'm recording. And so am I, Elrond. <laughs> All right, sure, we got this. We've got this down now. Okay, I'm I'm ready. <laughs>